Turn with me to Daniel 9, please, for today's sermon. I haven't already had a chance to meet you. I really look forward to doing that after the service. I hope you'll come say hello. There are probably a few in here I have not met. It's not our habit to point you out or anything like that, other than just to say, we see you. Most of you are friends of of this congregation, if not members of this congregation, so I'm glad to be with you today as well. Uh, This is the Lord's Day. It's also on the calendar as Mother's Day. Uh, So let me add my voice to the chorus of those who have already shown appreciation for motherhood. Hi, Mom. She watched later because she often watches this later. You don't see her. You'll see this later, probably. She lives in Arkansas. I love her. She's been real good to me. In fact, my mother's mother is still alive, but she's in failing health. I hope you might remember her in prayer. That would be meaningful to me. Uh, my last living grandparent, she's not in good health. We got some not good news about that this week, so I hope that you'll pray for her as well. Um, poor metaphor, but a metaphor that will stick. My mother is watching, but you don't see her. Much, 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 much greater is our Heavenly Father watching, even if you think you can't see Him. In fact, Scripture bears out that He's watching every move that we make. He's responsible for every breath that we take. And He surely sees this assembly right here. God sees when we don't think that He sees. Part of the act of coming to faith in Christ is coming to the understanding that He sees even when we formally thought that He did not, could not, would not. He sees. And God not only sees, but in fact has a heart to help His people, that is those of us that have come to faith in Christ or will come to faith in Christ, to help us see more clearly not only His presence in the world, but His unfolding plan. Daniel 9 puts us squarely into that theme of His desire to help us see His unfolding plan through the Word of God, through prayer. But in helping us see His unfolding plan for His glory and for our good, He doesn't do it in a way that you might imagine or you might even ask for. I think the text will bear this out. But we shouldn't be surprised by that, now should we? Because we often wouldn't ask for the same thing later in life as we would have earlier in life. Our asks get more mature, don't they? We learn to ask for wiser things, sometimes even different things. Thank God He doesn't always immediately give us what we ask for. But even more than that, Scripture bears out that even in your more mature state, his, you're not Him. His ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So even then, we even appeal to God for how we ought to pray and what we ought to say, right? Last week's sermon was 
knowing that we need to pray, but not knowing what to say. And we talked about the first section in Daniel 9. And so today we're going to, to read the second section in Daniel 9, where he, he gets the, the answer to what he's asked for. But just before we read it, I just want to offer a quick disclaimer. I'm a first-generation pastor in my family. I am searching the Scriptures uh, myself. I'm seeking to understand. I don't have a definitive word on the end of Daniel 9. It's got to be a top-five contested interpretive passage in the Bible, to be sure. But we have the Spirit. We each have the Spirit. We're going to look at this together and grow not only in this text, but also beyond the preaching of this text this morning. I know that there's nothing that we have that we have that we have not received. 1 Corinthians 4.7 tells us that. That I should stop using the first person plural, the first person singular pronoun I and start using the plural we, because this text is for we, as Daniel moves from the I to the we and talking about us and God's people. And really it moves from the we to the he, it moves to him. The focus moves from from us to him and what he's done for us. I think our job in looking at any text of Scripture is, as one pastor said, is to make the, the main things the plain things and the plain things the main things. So we, what we don't want to do is blur the main precept in any prophetic piece of literature in God's holy word. And so less, no less than that today. So you think to make it simple and plain, I want to take Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27 in two parts. We're going to read verses 20 to 23, which will constitute the text of my very first point, which is Daniel's answer to prayer. And then we will read verses 24 to 27, which will constitute my second point of the sermon, which is Daniel's vision of the gospel. And this isn't just about Daniel. What I hope is that we will see he, we'll see him, and that in seeing him, we will have more confidence to pray because he answers, and we'll have a more clear vision of the gospel through the word and prayer because he wants to give that to us through his word always and certainly today. So let's look for joy in Christ as we hear this text. In Daniel chapter 9, it is important that I read the first three verses for context, even though we're reading verses 20 to 27 for the text. So here, verses 1 to 3, if you have your Bible open, you see that, or just listen, because I didn't cue them up that I was going to read the first three verses back there. So here we go. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a descendant by descendant Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years." I'll have to comment on those verses in the first point of my sermon. Let me move on and read verses 20 to 23. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. 
to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after that, the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing, on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace into all who hear. Now, I need to say a few things about this first three verses so that you have context, especially if you slept since last Sunday's sermon, you need to know this. Uh, I take Darius to be Cyrus. I take it to be a synonym for the same person. King Cyrus or Darius was responsible for presiding over the toppling of the Babylonian Empire, and the Babylonian Empire was toppled in the 530s B.C., but we don't track the history of this text quite to there. We track it more to Ezra coming to rebuild the temple some years later. But this is about this first verse is about Darius or Cyrus, a king who is made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians. So Persians to Babylonians, in terms of world history, the Persians became the, the global superpower after the Babylonians were conquered. It's the first year of the reign. And Daniel, so we know, we know exactly where it is in terms of the 530s B.C. And Daniel then began to think about the promises that the prophet Jeremiah self-consciously wrote as Scripture in the book that you now have in your Bible as Jeremiah. And he understood, I think, two prophecies, the first of which is that the Babylonians would be conquered. And they were, they were conquered by the Persians. And now he's wondering when the second prophecy will come true. In fact, he's not just wondering it, he's praying with Scripture back to God and saying, would you please make this come true now? It seems to have been 70 years since the first wave of exiles, and Daniel's saying, I should know because I was a young boy when I was sent off to Babylonian exile, and it seems like the time has come for my people to return and to rebuild the temple. It seems reasonable. And in that context, with that backdrop, you understand the gravity of a prayer that Daniel is praying here. Whether he'd prayed it or not before, I don't know. But, but in this particular prayer that's now in Scripture, what you have is a man, an old man, probably in his 80s, a broken man, pleading with God to now accomplish that which he said he would do, which is a model for any of us. We ought pray that God would do that which he said he would do. He wants us to do that. Not that he won't do it otherwise, but he's pleased when his people pray. He's pleased to answer our prayers, especially prayers that understand his word rightly and ask him to do what he say would do. So for, for example there, ask God to save your loved ones. Ask him to. He's pleased when you ask that. Ask him to. Ask him because he's in the business of saving people's souls. Ask him to do so. Now, let's look at verse 3. Daniel turned his face to the Lord 
God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth for ashes. So he had a posture of prayer, a sincerity of prayer, and he prayed similarly, as we learned last week, to how we are praying in here. Prayers of praise, prayers of confession of our sin, prayers of petition. Please, please do this. According not to the ground of, of human faultiness or human ability, but to the ground of God as merciful and as righteous. He prayed God according to his own name to do what that which he had said that he would do. He appeals to God with a divine name for the first time in the book. The book uh, here, or the chapter here with the name Yahweh that's replete in the first 19 verses. But then we pick it up again in verse 20 with the all caps of the word Lord for Yahweh, the personal divine name for God toward his people. So now look at verse 20. And this first point of Daniel getting an answer to prayer, this is a lengthy prayer. In that context of the 530s B.C., the Persians having conquered the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, and it says in verse 20, while Daniel was praying, ostensibly on behalf of his people, I think clearly on behalf of his people, while he was speaking and praying, or speaking prayer, we do speak when we pray. It's interesting to track here, I might add, this word speaking is the Hebrew word debar, and it's used several times through here as speaking or word. It seems to be a theme uh, as far as praying the word, it seems to be a theme in this first point, these first verses. So li- listen for it upon a rereading. It's not so long we can't do that. It says, while Daniel was speaking, or debarring, wording, while he was wording and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, that is Mount Zion, while I was debarring, speaking, wording, and prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a debar, a word, a speaking, went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Greatly loved. Therefore, consider the debar, the word, and understand the vision. So Daniel has come to understand, looking back, the Scripture, the Word of God from the prophet Jeremiah regarding these 70 years of exile before Babylonian punishment. And he's now praying, asking God to do that which he said he would do. And he's praying this, and God hears the prayer and sends a messenger that is not only for Daniel, not only for Daniel's people, but he sends a messenger that will deliver a message that is for us too. It's in the Word of God. It's for us for all time, and it's for us in this generation. It's our job to mine that and figure out how that is for us today. This Word is for our understanding, even if some of the words leave us lacking understanding. It's all the more, I think, that we will wonder at Christ when all things have been fulfilled and the kingdom that was inaugurated at Christ's first coming is consummated upon His return. I emphasize, and I want you to take note to the phrase, greatly loved. Isn't that a comfort to you as a believer? You are greatly loved. It's not just Daniel that's greatly loved. It's not just the subjects of the corporate prayer, the first people that are greatly loved. It is all of God's people that are greatly loved. Anybody that would pray God's word back to him like Daniel, expectantly and hopefully, it would believe that God is a promise-keeping God. He makes promises and He keeps them. Every yes of the promises has its completion in Christ. And so you're greatly loved. This word to Daniel is confirmed for all of God's people in the New Covenant. 
He greatly loves those who call him his own. He gives us rights. I just want to pause and ask you in relation to this first point before we move to the second one. If you would receive Christ today, in fact, I don't even want to be quite so congenial. I would plead with you that you would receive Christ today. If you do, it would be because he first loved you. He set his affections on you long before you have thought to set your affections on him. Would you learn to love more fully by receiving his love? We've all not. We've all not received his love, me included. We each have turned to our own way. And Scripture bears witness, the Word of God bears witness, that because of that turning, we each deserve due penalty for our sin, which is eternal separation from God, eternal death. But, praise be to God, eternal life is the free gift to all who receive. So my plea with you today is that you would call on the name of the Lord for salvation, that you would receive Him. Won't you receive this free offer? The Bible says in the New Testament, for God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. So only believe. Repent of your sin, to state it in the negative. Turn from your rebellion against God, against his acknowledging that he sees all that you do and all that you are. And to state it in the positive, believe on Christ looking to him for your salvation. These are two sides of the same gospel coin. Repent of your rebellion and believe in Him for salvation. And if you have received this today, more or less, if this is you, if you call with us upon the name of the Lord in prayer today, if you call on the name of the Lord in prayer and you repent and believe this, this glorious gospel message that Christ is the climax of all the biblical text and that He did this for you, then we would love to hear about it. We would love for you to share it with us. Because in many ways, you're an answer to our prayers. You don't know it, but we've prayed for you. We've asked God to save your soul when you didn't think you needed it, just like we didn't think we needed it. We've asked your eyes to be open to the vision of the gospel that you would learn to pray. Not like the heathen do, but to pray the word. Asking God to do hastily what he said he would do. And so, our first point gives way to our second. From praying to having a vision for the gospel. Let's look at verse 24 afresh. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people. Daniel's vision of the gospel. The heavenly messenger, Gabriel, started his trek to Daniel early in Daniel's prayer. Here he is to explain the fullness of time in complete round numbers. I understand prophecy in the Bible to carry meaning across time, transtemporally. I preach it that way when I preach Revelation. What I mean by that is that it can carry more than one meaning across time. David Helm wrote about this same point like this. He said, It will be helpful for us to remember that apocalyptic literature in the Bible often has multiple horizons of fulfillment 
And so it may well be that Daniel 9, 24 to 27, also has multiple historical horizons of fulfillment. These could include the time of Antiochus Epiphanes in the 2nd century B.C. If you're not familiar with that, it was a really ugly Roman ruler that desecrated Jewish worship at the temple. Sacrificing a pig to pagan gods was awful. But it could include that. It could include the death and resurrection of Christ, certainly. The fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. As well as even the final consummation that arrives with the second coming of Christ. Calum writes, keeping this trans-historical nature or trans-temporal nature of apocalyptic literature in mind will help us stay humble as we work toward deeper levels of understanding, which is how I framed this project from the start of the sermon. Let's stay humble. Let's go deeper and deeper. Perhaps you have an understanding that I do not. I may have an understanding that you do not. Let's go deeper and deeper. Understanding good biblical and systematic theology and trying to wrestle with God word on God's own terms. Now, Sinclair Ferguson, one of my favorite preachers, helpfully keeps us majoring on majors when he breaks down these four verses, 24, 25, 26, and 27, with four subpoints. And so I think this second point of mine about Daniel having a vision of the gospel is helpfully understood with each of those four subpoints. You might say 2A, 2B, 2C, and 2D if you're keeping notes if you like organization and outlines. And so think of verse 24 as covering the entire period, the the 77s. By the way, I should say the 77 should be understood as 70 weeks of years. In other words, a period of 490 years, so just shy of 500 years. And one, one, one commentator said, like this, said that this verse provides sort of a clock for when the Messiah would come, more or less. So if you start to think in those terms, you think between Daniel's prophecy and Jesus coming, you kind of get a bit of a clock, even if it is general terms. So again, 2a, verse 24, covers the entire period. Verse 25 divides the first 79 sevens, so almost all of it. And then verse 26 describes the final seven in indefinite terms, indefinite terms. And then verse 27 describes the final seven in more detail. So zeroing in, as I think think Sinclair said, but I was trying to say better than I could when he said it. Verse 24 covers the entire period. Verse 25 divides the first 69 sevens. Verse 26 describes the final seven in more indefinite terms. And then verse 27 describes the final seven in more detail, greater detail. So uh, we, we, we all agree... All folks that are reading this agree, whether it's a figurative or a literal, we agree that 77 should be understood as 490 years. So you need to understand that that's not disputed. It's how to apply that, where to start the clock. That's where the disputing starts to happen from Daniel to Jesus. So just verse 24, 2a. Let's just plow through 2a, 2b, 2c, and 2d and then make application. So so Daniel receives this vision of the, the greater picture as he's thinking about these 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied about during the punishment of God's people for their rebellion under the instrumentation of the Babylonian Empire. And he understands that now that Babylon's been toppled, we're going to get to go home. And this is a great homecoming for Daniel since he's now lived seven out of eight decades of his life under the thumb of the Babylonian people. He's kind of excited that Persia has a different policy. And so verse 24, this is kind of a shocking thing for him to have interpreted to him, I would think. Seventy weeks 
or 77s, or 490 years, figurative or literal, whether it's literary or literal, however you interpret that, 490 years, the entire time period, verse 24, talks about. And, and think about what verse 24 is describing. L- look at the whole verse. 77, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, finish transgression, put it into sin, atone for iniquity, bring everlasting righteousness, seal or to confirm vision and prophet, anoint a most holy place. Just, just think about that and, and, and allow that to, to, to be, be viewed in a worshipful fashion. We're talking about salvation, aren't we? I mean, what does it mean to end sin and atone for iniquity if we're not talking about God and His glory and His unfolding plan? We can worship at this juncture in the text, can't we? The glory in it to glorify God now. Don't you long for everlasting righteousness? Like not the not the not the short stuff here that that seems to fade. It's nice to ask. We're supposed most the great confessions urge us to pray for the coming of the Lord, pray for the second coming of the Lord. We're to understand that there's still something broken in this world, even if the fix has been initiated or inaugurated. We still have deep hurts and wounds. We deal with frailty and sickness and death. And the Christian worldview has an answer to that. It's Christ. But according to the trans-temporal nature of prophecy, we're the ones that learn to wait and have patience. Because if instant pot, instant rice, if instant oatmeal were the things of spiritual things, if that was the warp and woof of Scripture, if that were the way Scripture read, then Christ would have fixed it all in the beginning. And we wouldn't still be sitting around here 2,000 years later. And for whatever reason, in the fullness of time when Christ came, praise God, there was more time until Christ comes. And while we are to pray for the second coming of Christ, we are not to sit around tapping our toe, insisting on better lives now. The reality is, is that the way of the cross is not the way of personal glory. And when we look to Christ as our example, whatever your view of the end times you understand that in route to get there, there will be troubled times and suffering. Surely you understand that as believers, right? And so when we look at a text like verse 24, we, we see the gospel, God's promise in the fullness of time to finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring everlasting righteousness, seal both vision and profit to anoint a most holy place to be verse 25 divides the first 69 sevens there was a period probably between persian king artaxerxes in the fifth century bc and he commissioned ezra the priest in 457 bc it would have been after the death of daniel so daniel is an old man gets this this prophecy i just to pause for a second too before i say anything else about this can you imagine like we tend to think and this really is short-sightedness that the end of the world has to happen in our lifetime. Like, it might, 
But how much hubris does it take to insist on that? It has to happen in this lifetime. Like, do you know how many generations have thought it had to happen in their lifetime and it hasn't? Like, if we're to be of any earthly good, we probably need to accept the fact that it might not happen in our lifetimes. It might, but it, might, but it very well might not. Even as we pray for the Lord to come, like, it very well might not. Like, you, you, that's very important. I mean, Daniel's sitting here and he's thinking, we're going to go back home. And I, I just imagine he thinks there's going to be a whole lot more finality to the fixing of God's people. And what he gets a vision of is, well, you're going to go back home, but more trouble, more time, more waiting. <laughs> I wonder if we present this, this gospel project too often in fallacious terms, and it's one of the reasons that people are get dis- disillusioned with it. Like We're not inviting you to come have your best life now, regardless of what pagan preachers say. We're inviting you to come and die. When Jesus calls a man, he bids the man come and die. But the good thing about dying in Jesus is dead things rise again. And we're calling you to this gospel, this glorious gospel, to imitate Christ, and you're going to give your life in a sense, for others, because he gave his life for you. And while you cannot atone for their sins with your life like he did for yours, you can imitate that atoning work by being willing to serve other people instead of simply be served. And that's what the gospel does to us. And I think Daniel probably, as, as holy of a man as he was relative, I think he's getting in touch with that here in a way that maybe we can, but it's hard truths as we age to think, I might not get to see everything I want to see right now in this flesh and blood, but by faith I'm going to see it all according to God's unfolding plan. In terms of 2b in verse 25, just taking 24, 25, 26, 27, and divides the first 69 sevens. So many will track this to the Persian king Artaxerxes commissioning Ezra the priest in 457 B.C. to return and rebuild the temple. It was a troubled time. As I've already mentioned, in 167 B.C., Antiochus IV Epiphanes messed with the sacrifice, pigs and pagan idolatry, ugly toward Jewish worship. All of this was pointing the way toward a truer temple, toward a Messiah. If math were even the key here, which I think I've already said, I don't think it is, if you take 457 and subtract 483, which would be 69 sevens, and it would take you to the time of Jesus, for sure. Even with imprecise dating and commentators going back and forth about dates. We, we don't have precise dating according to prophecy. Every time we try to get it right, we're reminded that no man knoweth the hour of the day of lots of things, let alone the second coming of Christ. But to go back to the prophecy surrounding the first coming of Christ, it's, it's, it's remarkably apt. The wording is remarkably apt if you were to just put yourself, just stake yourself back in the first century A.D., and read Daniel's prophecy, you'd be like, wow. I mean, you would. you just, wow. And so how much more wow will we have upon Christ's second coming? Just the same. God's timing is precise and glorious. Messiah would come, and sadly, in the first century, Jesus, as a Jew, would be mostly rejected by his own people. They didn't understand what the sacrificial system pointed to. And to be transparently honest with you, we don't either a lot of times. 
we are tempted to insult the book of Hebrews and Christ's ultimate propitiation by having a, a mindset that we need to add to it more animal sacrifices. But Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. The tabernacling temple of Jesus' body, as John in the Gospel of John says, and as Hebrews helps us out to here, we see Christ as the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. No need to go back. We go forward. Because what Christ has done for us. Verse 26 is 2C. It describes the final seven in indefinite terms. Isaiah foretold the Messiah would be cut off for us. Isaiah 53.8, we often read that chapter around the Lord's table at communion. And so Isaiah, a former prophet, foretold that the Messiah would be cut off for us. And don't we see that in verse 26? If you glance down, it says, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. We that think we should have everything, as I've already said, need to be reminded that our Messiah, the apex of this prophecy, quote, shall have nothing, end quote. His own people killing Jesus to see. Quickly to 2D. Verse 27 describes the final seven in more detail. Again, Ferguson says it very well. If this understanding of the structure is correct of these four verses, then the first half of Daniel 9.27 refers to Christ. That's disputed, but I'm taking it today. The second half of the destruction might refer to the destruction of the city and the abominations involved in its downfall at the hands of Emperor Titus in AD 70. In the middle of the final week described here, Christ died for his people. He brought all sacrifice to an end, as the letter of the Hebrews underlines, regardless of the dating of its writing. And within four decades from the Messiah's rejection to from the Messiah's rejection, the soil on which the temple was built, so beloved by Daniel, would once again be defiled by pagans, because Jerusalem would again be desolate. I remember in 2012 when my wife and I went to Israel together with a group from this church. I remember standing on top of Mount Masada, and I remember studying the history and hearing the history of how in AD 70, the Jewish people were driven out as the temple was destroyed, and the last holdouts, just shy of a thousand of them, were on top of this, this eerie Mount Messiah, and the Roman legions were at the bottom of the mount, and they held out for a couple of years uh, before they finally all got overtaken. And there were just a few people left to tell the history, to be sure. But what I must say here is that in AD 70, a great and climactic event did occur. And some would say that according to Matthew 24, 15, that perhaps Jesus is leveraging the words of Daniel from here with regard to the abomination that causes desolation. Perhaps he's leveraging that text to describe the due punishment on the Jewish people who so beloved temple sacrifice that they didn't see Jesus as the big T temple and the ultimate sacrifice for their sins. The new covenant in Christ's blood 
How much of this Daniel understood in the moment in the 530s B.C., we can't be sure, but we can imagine that it was hard for him to hear. But looking at this, it should be hard for us to hear because it's our sin collectively that put Jesus on the cross, isn't it? It's not just ethnic Jews from the first century. As if it's only one generation or one ethnic, one ethnicity of people that sinned and put Jesus on the cross. Doesn't the Bible say that Jesus died to redeem for himself a people from every tribe and every tongue? And that means also not just every tribe and every tongue in a generation, but it also means transtemporally across generations. And God's unfolding plan, does he not intend for the gospel to go forward and redeem for himself a people from every generation and from every tribe and tongue? Far and wide? It must be hard for us to hear. I don't see a great parenthesis in this 70th week. I'll tell you why to end the sermon in a moment. First, I just want to quote yet another scholar, one that I follow. Uh, he wrote the NIV Study Bible. We mainly promote to you around here the ESV Study Bible because we read from the ESV in here. But the NIV Study Bible is a good study Bible because Don, Don Carson's a spectacular scholar. But, but he simply wrote, to interpret the significance of Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years in exile, his holy hill is Mount Zion, temple location where God made his presence known among his people. Maybe this does point to the temple destruction and the Antichrist, or many Antichrists, to use New Testament nomenclatures, arrival and defeat. Maybe this is of covenantal events, periods of time that are symbolic, that should not be pressed into an absolute chronology of future events. Maybe this is the 70th year of Jubilee, the consummation coming of all time. The ultimate fulfillment of Jeremiah's new covenant read to begin our service today. Do you remember the service leader read Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, about a new covenant to come? Keep in mind those words were penned before Daniel even said this prayer and got this answer. This text today, to ask and answer, brought to me, to my mind, a correlation between Daniel 9 and Matthew 18 in terms of complete numbers, 70 and 7s. And I guess I wasn't the only one because when I turned from studying this text on my own and looking at it grammatically and trying to place it in the full of canon, and then I turned to some commentators, many of which I've quoted here today, one of them picked up on this exact same parallel with regard to numbers and completeness of numbers. It's Ian Duguid, and I'm just going to quote him because he said it better than I think I can say it. Here's what he said. Many understand these 77s to be a literal period of 490 years. And the parallel he makes is between our text today and Matthew 18. That's where my mind went. I think, you'll, I think those of you that have, stu- have read through the Bible study, I think this will hit you really quick. If not, you'll understand it for sure. So he wrote, Many understand these 77s to be a literal period of 490 years. Since 7 and 70 are both numbers of completeness in the Bible, others understand the figure that results when they're multiplied together as representing the ultimate incompleteness. This is certainly the case in Matthew chapter 18. In that passage, Jesus is responding to Peter's, the Apostle Peter's question as to how often he should forgive his brother when he sinned against him. Remember this? How often do I need to forgive him? Maybe seven times? You know, also a complete number. 
Should he forgive him as many as seven times? And in reply, Jesus told the apostle Peter to forgive his brother 70 times seven times. Matthew 18, 22 for the information. No one interprets this number literally as if Peter were obligated to, be, to, to forgive his brother 490 times, but on the 491st occasion not to. You, you chuckle at that, right? But take that logic. Rather, they recognize that the point Jesus was making, again, they recognize the point that Jesus is making, was that Peter's perspective on forgiveness was too small. It needed to be expanded. So too here, the vision is challenging Daniel's perspective on the time scale needed to do, it, to do away with transgression and to achieve restoration. It would not take a mere 70 years to accomplish in the heart and lights of God's people, but 70 times 7 to accomplish a complete and ultimate victory over sin and evil. However, this bad news was not and is not intended to cause despair. Even though its coming will occur after Daniel's lifetime, the promised new covenant will arrive in due season and it will accomplish everything that God has designed for it. I don't know about you, but for me, that's comforting. Because God is precise in the timing of every single prophetic fulfillment. So you don't have to be. Seek to understand with a humble heart, please do. Show one another the good things that you find in Scripture, please do. Share it with your teacher like Galatians 6 says, please do. But, but, stay humble, stay low, and understand that if you are trying to interpret something to be high and mighty and to get your better stuff right now, you're probably missing the point of biblical prophecy. For our leader in this whole thing gave himself up, even humbly to death, on a cross. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us the entire Bible. Thank you for caring for us enough to keep us not only affirmed in our salvation, but interested in your text of Scripture. 